Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan Podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thank you guys for joining us today and happy Thanksgiving week. We are incredibly thankful for you, our listeners. We're incredibly thankful for all of the contributors and awesome people we've had this season and the past couple of seasons who've been a part of our podcast as we come together and collaborate and try and um, figure out best strategies for helping orphaned and vulnerable children. Phil, what, what are you thankful for? Lots and lots of things. It would take way too long. We don't have enough time on the show, especially since we have a little bit longer of a uh, an interview today, two weeks in a row. So, you know, it's all great content, which is what we're bringing to you. Um, I am thankful for this show. I am thankful for the people that are being impacted by the great guests that we've been able to have. I'm thankful for the guests that we've had on the show. I am thankful that uh, God has given me the opportunity to do this work. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm obviously thankful for my family, for my friends, um, for just my community that I get to live in um, and the global community that we have. I, I do tell people regularly um, a lot of the things I love about my job. But one of the things that I absolutely love about what I get to do is the people that I get to work with. And, you know, people like Robert Day, who's the guest for today's show. People like Sosima Samuel Burnett, who was a couple weeks ago. That's, that's one of the people I just told you before recording that, you know, she's a, she's a woman who's doing amazing work, but she's also a woman who will make you feel like you are the most important person in the room when she's talking with you, most important person in the world when she's talking with you. And those type of people are, you know, unfortunately not, uh, not as common as we'd want to, we'd want to think, you know, and I just seem to think that, that we get a higher percentage of those people in this work, people that are doing it um, for the love of the children, for the love of the kingdom building work that they get to do. And I'm just extremely thankful for that. So, um, yeah, I, I love the question. I love, you know, the idea of gratitude. And I think it's something you and I have talked yeah. about too. And I, I want you to speak to that just a, a minute about that from the psychological perspective too, just the importance of showing gratitude, um, the importance of, you know, really just being thankful, not just Thanksgiving week, but every day of our lives, like how it can really change our perspective. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of literature and a lot of research related to positive psychology and gratitude psychology. And it's something that I include in my work almost all the time with children, teenagers or adults of just um, helping them to actually intentionally think through just even one or two things every single day before they go to sleep that they're thankful for. Um, it can be something really um you know, basic or things that we might take for granted. Like, you know, I'm thankful that I actually have a house to live in, or I'm thankful that I have a car to drive or something more elaborate and more in depth. It's incredibly helpful in that for sure. Yeah. So, you know, again, that's a whole topic for another Multiple show. It's another day. <laughs> <laughs> but I know we try to do that every night at dinner. We just have the kids share three ways God yeah. showed himself to them today or that day. And, and I love it. The kids love doing it. It's great conversations and, and we, we get to be able to share what we're grateful about for that day. So with that, you know, we're going to get into our interview with Robert Day. He is an author of a couple books. Um, he is the host of a radio show, Straight Talk with Robert Day. He is the CEO of 
Patrick Henry, Henry Family Services. And we're going to hear about what Patrick Henry's doing, um, about Robert's story. His, his life has, has been, it's been a rough ride, but God has used it in awesome ways. And he has come through that uh, trauma of his childhood to be able to use it to affect and impact so many lives to help other children flourish. Um, and I, I just really enjoyed my conversation with Robert. I think you're going to be able to get a lot out of it. So take some notes um, and again, engage with us and continue the conversation online at thinkorphan.com on our Facebook page um, uh, or by sending us an email to info at thinkorphan.com. So and get right to the interview I was able to do with Robert Day. Well, Robert, it is so great to have you here today. Thank you, Phil. Uh, great pleasure. Yeah, well, you know, Robert, I know that uh, I was I was one of these people before we were able to uh, get connected a few weeks ago, and um, I'm sure that so many of those out there listening just really don't know you, don't know your story. Um, so I'd love to just kind of get started uh, with you sharing your story with our audience and really how you got to be where you are today. Sure, uh, my pleasure. Um, you know, my story is pretty common uh, to the children that we are both concerned about. Um, the orphan, the foster kid, the vulnerable child, um, all the usual suspects are part of the story, poverty, abuse, uh, abandonment, dysfunction, substance abuse. Um, you know, really only the specifics are unique um, to me. Uh, but my mom um, was 16 years old and pregnant, uh, was in foster care. Uh, actually placed in Anwood Mother's home um, when she was pregnant with me. She had been removed from her family uh, because of abuse. She's the second oldest of 13 children, um, and that's just on her maternal side. I'm not sure how many children her father ended up having. Um, and so I was um, uh, a child of a unwed um, teenage mom from very poor background, no education, uh, abused, neglected herself. Um, my first home then was a was a, a group home, if you will, and and my second home was a foster home. My mom, after having me, it originally put me up for adoption, and she was placed in a foster home. Hmm. Um, and those same foster parents who took my mom asked the state if they could also take me with the intent to adopt me. And so my first two years, I lived with my mom um, in the same foster home. And the story goes, when I started learning to talk, I called her sis because we both thought of them as our um, parents, I guess. Hmm. Um, for some reason, I've never uh, been able to figure out uh, or find the answer to the adoption never took place. Uh, probably because my mom, after being in the foster care uh, system, felt safe. Um, and being in that secure setting probably rethought um, about um, giving up permanent uh, custody of me and terminating her rights. So, but when she turned 18 and aged out of the foster care system, she made a, de a decision that I have regretted my entire life, and that is she took me with her, and I was removed from that foster home and from the couple who loved me and was willing to raise me as their own and give me a sense of permanency, um, but that didn't happen. 
And so the rest of my story is really a story of um, chaos and and dysfunction and uh, drug abuse and all the things that uh, unfortunately happen to uh, kids in that kind of situation. I was raised um, by a child um, who was had a lot of emotional and and um, psychological issues because of her own past, and so it was pretty unstable. I moved at least thirty-seven times uh, before I graduated from high school, uh, and experienced um, abuse and and neglect and and trauma myself uh, before I finally. Um, I broke free from all of that. Yeah, and you know, really today, you're obviously um, running uh, an orphan care organization. Not just an orphan care organization; it does a whole lot more, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. You've written a book on your childhood. You've obviously kind of come out the other side of that, you know, trauma, and I'm sure that it comes up here and there as well today. But how did hmm. God work in your life? Um, to provide healing and restoration from that trauma you experienced in your childhood. Yeah, I was just uh, at a church last Wednesday uh, telling my story, and somebody in the congregation asked that very same question. And I basically said, I'm looking at the answer Hmm. to the question. I'm looking at a congregation uh, in a local church. And so it started out with those foster parents uh, were Christian people. They um, were older, had not been able to have children of their own. Uh, desiring to want to have children. And, and I also think because they felt some call um, to the orphan ministry, decided to become foster parents. And my mom and I were their first placement. Um, later, when I was 10 years old, I was placed back into that same home. And that's where I learned some of the story of, of those early years. And I learned that they had prayed for me every day that I was away from them and they had prayed that I would return to them for another chance to reconnect. And so I was there, I had to learn memory verses and books of the Bible and I was at church every time the door was open. And that planted a seed in my heart. So when I left them a second time, um, you know, by then I was a little older and I could get myself up and get to the nearest church I could find on a Sunday morning. And I would just attend uh, by myself. And I usually didn't know anybody at the church, but there was something about church and about the people at church that drew me there. It felt safe. Um, I also knew that I would be fed something if I told somebody I was Hmm. hungry. And so it was just, it was uh, a number of, local churches in these 37 different places that I lived, uh, just Christian people who saw this um, little boy by himself um, and decided to, you know, speak kind words uh, to him and and bless him in some way. And so there was just a thousand acts of goodness and kindness from Christian people um, that I think um, kept me um, from experiencing even worse um, trauma than I did, but also planted um, seeds of the gospel in me so that when I became a teenager, age 17, I uh, kind of made that decision for myself to be a Christ follower. Uh, and without which, I doubt very seriously feel that I'd be uh, talking to you today um, or leading an organization that's serving children. I, I don't know if I would have been healed 
Um, I probably would have my own dysfunctional family and and uh, made some fateful uh, bad decisions as an adult that would have disqualified me from doing what I'm doing now. Hmm. Before we get into that work that you are doing uh, today, uh, we'll talk about that for a bit today. But how would you encourage our listeners to connect with and encourage, challenge, and really speak truth into the lives of kids from hard places who so desperately need our love, but often don't uh, show it and don't mm. uh, uh, respond as we necessarily want them to? Yeah, so that happened, like I said, so many times from people that I don't even know their names. I can't even remember their faces today, but they obviously uh, encouraged me and spoke into my life, uh, sometimes challenged me. Um, and I was certainly uh, desperately in need of love. I, <clears throat> there's something um, from young life, the, the Christian ministry that reaches out to lost teenagers. And, and the concept is um, that you've got to earn the right to be heard. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes that takes time, and, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, it, 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 I think kids are a lot like um, dogs. They, they kind of sense if somebody really cares about them and wants good for them. And so by um, probably uh, body language and uh, their words. So there's just so many ways that they quickly earn the right to be heard. Um, and so that's what I would suggest to people is um, it's not so much the words as, as the, the intent behind the words and behind the um, the actions. I think I, I think kids pick up on it pretty quick, particularly kids who are looking uh, for love and, and looking for some kind of nurture. Yeah, then just be consistent too. I imagine yeah. that's that's something that that is part of that earning of the trust, and uh, no kids doubt. kids know that too, right? They do, yeah. <laughs> they do. The kids that we work with, I, I see it all the time. They've been, um, you know, they they kind of can be standoffish. They've they've been hurt. They've been um, rejected, um, and so they learn to observe pretty easily, don't they? They watch, they observe, they listen. Um, when we don't think they are, um, but they're looking, they're looking for, um, somebody who's genuine and who really cares and they can pick up on it pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally have five biological children and I know they're the exact same way, right? When I'm not Mm -hmm. genuine, when I'm just kind (laughs) of doing something, going through the motions, they're, they're pretty quick to tell me. And I know, and I think a lot of times the difference is some of these kids don't tell us, right? You know, they hold it in a bit more. Um, Kind of with that, uh, how, how do the trauma and difficulties you encountered as a child inform the work you're doing today and help you in doing what you're doing? Mm. So it, it's helped me to connect with them on an emotional level, uh, on an experiential level. Um, so it's easy for me to um, have empathy um, for the hurt and the pain. It helps me to be a little more patient with some of their behaviors or their attitudes or their words because uh, um, I understand the hurt. Um, you know, here at Patrick Henry, we, we don't talk about, um, what's wrong with this kid. We talk about what happened to this kid. Um, and so that's kind of the perspective. Um, I, I understand on a personal level that something that has happened to this child that's, that's in front of us mm-hmm. and maybe acting, um, bizarre and, may be defiant and whose language may be very offensive. Um, but understanding that there's a source behind it helps. Yeah. Right. 
And that whole, uh, you don't understand often doesn't work with you. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> you might be able to no, say that to true. me, but not with you. Yeah, no, and I think yeah, and I'm that, and right? I'm free to tell the story. I'm free to uh, I I tell the story. Um, if I, I I don't start out telling the story, I I wait for some kind of opening or some kind of invitation because I I think I, um, just starting off telling the story um, can be put off for kids sometimes as well. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I know one of the things that you're doing today, um, you've written a book and we'll get to that in a few minutes, but mm-hmm. one of the other things that you're doing is a radio show, um, straight talk with Robert day yes. and, um, really what caused you to start that show and kind of tell, tell the audience what the show's about and, and what you hope, uh, the impact will be on your listeners. Yeah. So from an organizational standpoint, it, it was about, uh, raising visibility, um, and relevance for our organization and our ministry to find new friends and donors and supporters of the ministry. Um, from an organizational standpoint, I wanted to kind of brand us with the cause. We, we needed to um, be something different than we uh, were. Um, and so I needed to be able to tell this story to help people make the journey from one paradigm to the next. Mm-hmm. So it's one way to kind of speaking into that on just a regular, consistent basis, because sometimes you got to um, tell it a hundred different ways before somebody uh, really gets it. Right. But from a program or from a kind of a service perspective, it was about speaking into the culture. Ultimately, um, from my perspective, um, uh, one of our challenges is is a poisonous culture, uh, a broken culture that's uh, causing families to become um, distressed and broken, and and of course, distressed, broken families uh, produce vulnerable children uh, that get traumatized. Um, so I, I think we we've just we've got to challenge the culture about some of its thinking. Absolutely. Have you seen some fruit from that? Have you, I assume you have, but can you just share a story of maybe some of the, someone that heard the show and told you a story of how it's really impacted yeah. them? Yeah. So we've, uh, just as we'd hoped that we've gained friends and supporters. I've had opportunities to speak at churches, civic clubs and other organizations, um, because somebody heard me say something on uh, one of the, um, segments. Um, but I also occasionally get an email uh, from somebody who said that really spoke to me, to my story, or uh, spoke to my, our situation at home, and, and it gave me a chance to go further into some kind of conversation with them about that. Um, so we're very, very pleased with the fruit of it. It was worth um, the investment for sure. Well, great. And I think that really speaks to the, the idea of just sharing your story, sharing what you're about, sharing why you're doing what you're doing with people. And, and you never know who that might touch, you know, and you put exactly. it out there and God will use it however he wants to. But, uh, you know, we have our purposes, but sometimes it uh, manifests itself differently in the kingdom. And I assume you've seen that with the show. We have. And I, I'm sure it's the same thing with you and what you've done with this podcast. Um, you I'm sure you had goals uh, that have been met, but there are probably some uh, very nice unintended consequences from it as well, huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I encourage everyone out there, really, you know, don't don't just do something um, willy-nilly, but go out and, and share your story and put it out there. Don't think that you don't have something to share because, mm-hmm. you know, God puts something different and unique in everybody. And if you don't share it, then you're you're holding that back, what God wants to share. So I just encourage everyone with that. Um, speaking of sharing your story, you know, you gave us a little snippet, 
um, in the in the intro to this podcast. And the reason why I didn't um, dive into it too much is because you've put it down on paper in a book. Um, it's called The Worst of Mothers, Best of Moms. And, and you know, I, I just finished this book recently. And I just got to say to everyone out there, I was super encouraged by this. I've actually used a couple of the principles already in my home with my kids. Um, and just uh, some of the things we're going to talk about today and some other things that we're not, unfortunately, going to be able to get to. But it, this, this book is not only an amazing story of God's work in a very difficult life, but it is full of lessons that we need to know and embody, really, as we live out our kingdom purposes working with children, and particularly children from hard places. And today we're going to be able to tackle a couple of the um, principles that are in there. But I just want... Um, you folks to know out there that this, it's, it's not just a, a you know, provo- provoking, you know, emotion and saying, oh, we just, I just got to tell my story to get, you know, people sobbing and, and, and getting people to come to my ministry. That's not what this book's about. This book is really about encouraging us and challenging us to think about these children that we're working with um, and see them as humans with specific callings and purposes and gifts and talent that God's given them. So um, first of all, Robert, I just want to thank you for, for putting this on paper. As I know you said in the, in the intro to it, that it wasn't something that you, you know, necessarily wanted to do the first couple of times people said to put it down. But you say something kind of at the beginning, and uh, I just want to read this quote. It says, my life story is part of my life purpose. The story serves as a map to my own hidden treasure, my divine purpose. The two are irrevocably intertwined. My calling is connected to my childhood. My childhood is fastened firmly to my life of service. The Lord has repurposed my pain for his own good reason. He has beautifully recycled my trauma and turned it into something positive. If sharing my story helps others, then it has served a wonderful purpose. Yet it isn't about me or even my story. It has to be about more than that or I would not have written it. So why did you write it? What what do you hope that God will do through it and how do you hope it will impact others' lives? Well, first of all, thanks for asking the question. Um, and, and you blessed me by, by saying that you have already used some of the principles with your family. Um, um, that just blesses me to hear that. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's, a, there's thousands of stories just like mine. Um, and that's why I said in the beginning is very uh, common. But obviously, it's my story, so it's unique. Um, so from my perspective, why tell the story if there weren't some lessons that could be learned from it or some people that could be helped? Um, and so, again, from an organizational standpoint, I needed to help those who authorize this ministry and the, uh, those who support the ministry understand where I was trying to take the organization. And I needed them to understand the children that were serving on an emotional level. I couldn't tell their story. They have to tell their own story uh, one day. But I could tell mine, and since they knew me personally, um, I thought it would mean something more to them. But I didn't want to just, like you said, tell the sob story so that it would elicit um, more contributions. I wanted to tell the story to say, here's some solutions, here's some answers, um, here's some strategy that we could turn this around, that we don't have to accept this um, as reality, that everything that happened to me was preventable. Hmm. And if it was preventable, then why wasn't it prevented? And and why isn't it being prevented today in, in the children that we serve? So that's why I wrote the story. Um, but I also wanted to, to encourage the local church. 
I mean, the local church really was um, my salvation, um, both physically and, and spiritually. And I'm afraid the, a lot of local churches have lost sight of their opportunity to do the same thing for the children in their own communities. Hmm. They've gotten called off to do other things or gotten distracted uh, to do other things and have neglected this really critical uh, call on, on them. Or they're doing it. They're, they're serving children, but they're not seeing any fruit of that. And I know there were dozens of Sunday school teachers and vacation Bible school teachers and youth ministers and pastors who spoke in, into my life and helped me that never saw the results of it. Hmm. And uh, so I want to encourage those churches who are doing that to know, you know, don't don't grow weary in doing good, uh, that it will bear fruit in its time. So that's why I wrote it. Yeah, and, and I know that you, you talked about uh, the, the need for the church, as you were talking about, to focus, really collaborate and work as a team and, and have a sense of urgency on these issues. And those are things that, you know, we're really trying to encourage and, and empower people to understand more and more on this show is that we need to work together. This is not something that we, we do on our own. This is not something that one organization is going to tackle and conquer. Um, but this is for the church. This is for the organizations that, that God has, has given that vision to. And so, and really that urgency. And I, I know the, the river analogy that you use in the book and several people have used um, in different talks that I've heard over the last couple of years, the idea of there's all these bodies floating down the river, mm-hmm. there are these children that we're pulling out one by one, and we need to really go upstream and figure out what's causing this. And I think those are some of the issues that we're going to talk about a little bit later today, but I know that that was something that I really appreciated throughout the book too. And this next, you know, quote that we're going to talk about for a minute is, is, is one of those, you know, ways that we can really enter into this, um, these issues with these children. It says, take a troubled child with an abusive past, give that child hope that the future can be different and that child will be successful. But if you take the same child and focus on his past, you will only create a victim whose future will be little more than a repeat of his miserable past. And I'd like for you to flesh that out a little bit for the audience and really discuss how this relates to the importance of, of something that you talked about later in the book, which is changing the narrative of people in poverty and the children from harsh, hard places that God puts in our lives. Sure. You know, so that uh, there's several different ways to look at an issue. Um, you know, psychology um, tends to look at a person's uh, behavior and, and associate it with something that happened in their past. and. Sociology likes to look at the present situation, present environment uh, as an explanation of, of people's behavior. Uh, but I think theology, um, particularly Christian theology, um, is really the answer because it speaks to a future orientation. You know, my hope isn't uh, in my past and my hope uh, isn't um, grounded in my present circumstances or environment. My my hopes uh, grounded in a future. Um, the future obviously happened because of something Jesus did in the past, and and I have the gifts of the Holy Spirit that abides with me now in the present. Um, but my behavior, what I'm doing now in terms of ministry, is because of a future that I want to create uh, as much as I can here, but also because I'm going to have a future where I stand before the one who gave me redemption and give an answer and account for my life. So I think it's the same thing with children. Um, if you can um, 
get them excited about the possibility of the future, it, it doesn't matter what happened in the past, and it doesn't matter what's happening now or the kind of situation there is. I, I saw this when I taught uh, college courses. I'd sometimes see kids from uh, good homes, good educational backgrounds, um, just flounder in college because they didn't know what they wanted uh, to do with their life. Uh, and I saw kids from poor backgrounds with uh, from bad schools, but they had a sense of call in their life. They knew what they wanted, and it affected their behavior. They focused on their schoolwork, and they did what was necessary to get it done because they were going somewhere. So that's what I kind of see, too, with these kids. Um, these kids are, are going nowhere because they don't have a concept of the future. Mm-hmm. Everything they're looking at is in, obviously influenced by their past and maybe even their current situation. But it seems to me the whole point of Christian ministry is, is to provide hope. And that hope is for something that can happen tomorrow. So right. that's what I meant by that. And can you speak a little bit? I know you talked about, you know, a lot of the listeners out there, some some will, are living in poverty. Some know this very well. They're working with people deep in poverty. But a lot of people here, especially, I mean, a, a good portion of our audience is in the U.S., really living, a lot of people in the suburbs, a lot of people um, really don't see real poverty in their lives. And, and they don't know people who are in that poverty that, that has this narrative that you talked about of really people that are in poverty. Um, why it's such a cycle of poverty. Uh, and, and can you just speak to that narrative that you talked about in the book of people in poverty and how we can hopefully speak truth into that to change the narrative? Sure. So uh, we know that poverty um, affects IQ uh, because there's so much resources that is spent um, just dealing uh, with the day-to-day that it um, it, it takes up a lot of that um, – brain energy, if you will. Um, But IQ can improve, uh, you know, particularly if we can uh, improve it before the, it kind of settles and and sets in at age 15 or 16. Um, But poverty is, is kind of a worldview. I've, I've always believed um, that there was a culture of poverty and that, um, Worldview or the way a person thinks is a much is as much a uh, aspect or factor in people living in poverty as as any other factor that we normally talk about, like economics or education, these kinds of things. And so, for me, it's about you know changing the way people think and changing that narrative. Uh, so, people in poverty, like I did. Um, you know, we are told that um, you can't learn or, you know, we um, don't value education. I remember more than once my family accusing me of acting above my raising, uh, that I was putting on airs because I, I like to go to school or I, I like to learn. And it's one way that poor people keep other poor people in the, in the gutter uh, because they don't want somebody to get out because if they can get out that meant they themselves could get out um and so it's peer pressure to to stay at the lowest common denominator and so that's a big challenge for obviously for those working with kids in poverty is break is to break that and one of the ways that we try to do it here patrick henry is to give them a larger worldview so we take them on cultural events and educational events and we take kids who've never been to the 
beach to to see the ocean. Um, we want to show them that life is larger than the um, than the hollow or the neighborhood that they grew up, and that there are families and people who live um, lives very different than the lives that they themselves have lived. And it's partly why I think I got out of this because I. Uh, I didn't always live with my mom. I was in a lot of different places uh, and with a lot of different people in those 37 moves. And so I had occasion where I saw people live different lives mm-hmm. who had different values and made different decisions, and that helped. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, sometimes kids never get out of that. They don't see anything different than the hollow and the family that they're in, and so – their, their choices and decisions are going to be very much like how they grew up. Absolutely. Yeah. It's that cycle. Like, he's, like we talked about and like I talk about yeah. the questions really that you don't have that belief. And, and I think that this next quote that you have speaks to that and it says compassion without expectation is enablement and that breeds dependency. The foundation of any healthy relationship is reciprocity without it. There's no dignity and dysfunction will fill the character vacuum it leaves behind you know, and this is the idea that, you know, we have an expectation that, again, God has given these kids gifts and talents and skills. And some people, sometimes they've never been spoken that into. And that's mm-hmm. why there's so much dependency. And it's not, we don't want this in, enablement, this entitlement mentality to, to come out. But can you give a, an example of really that idea of reciprocity and the, the powerful and uh, extremely important truth that you state in that, in that uh, quote to make it more tangible and practical for our audience to understand what that might look like in a life? Sure. When I came to Patrick Henry in 2010, um, the children in our care uh, uh, celebrated five different Christmas parties. These were groups of people, organizations that threw parties for our children, you know, because they felt um, sorry for them or they're the poor orphans, um, the the whole (laughs) mentality. And, and, when I added it up, uh, these children on average got about $3,000 worth of gifts from these five different Christmas p- parties. But I would watch their behavior. It, it, it caused them to be bratty. Um, and then it just set, it, it set up their families for failure because when these kids would go home after all of our Christmas parties, they'd go home to their families to try to spend a day or two. And there's no way their family could ever compete with that. And so there were fights and and a disruption, and these kids would have to come back early uh, because we had spoiled them in the name of compassion. Uh, and then we never expected anything of them. We never taught them to say thank you. We never uh, thought of any <laughs> that there was anything expected of them other than receive these gifts and be, um, you know, love us for doing it. Um, this this year, you know, it took me a while to kind of ravel those traditions, but um, there was one simple Christmas party in the cottage for these kids. Um, each child got a, it was a budget of $100 to buy gifts for them, but here's the thing that we did different. We uh, we spent $50 to buy a gift for them, and then we gave them $50 and helped them buy gifts for their family so that when they went home, they took gifts with them to give to their families. Right. Um, and you know, these kids spent time ringing the bell at the Salvation Army, and they did some projects. Um, we wanted them 
not to always be on the receiving end of this, right. um, but to be on the giving side of it. And it's it's really changed the whole dynamic of Christmas and the spirit of Christmas. And and we don't see the behavior problems that we used to see when we had all of this crazy uh, exa- um, um, parties that <laughs> without an end. It was crazy. Right. Yeah, that's something I talk about a lot as you talked about them serving, them giving. It's mm-hmm. it, sometimes the best thing and the most ama- you know, amazing, merciful thing we can do to someone is allow them to show mercy or allow them to serve, to show that they actually are created to do that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, that's, I'm, it's encouraging to hear that, that you're doing that and how you've, how you've seen that and see the need, the need for that. Um, well, I, may, may, may I say yeah, something? About, absolutely. It, I, I'm reading your book right now and what I, really appreciated about it is, you know, a lot of times we Christians are motivated um, by obligation or duty. And I liked how you talked about that can, you know, just lead to burnout and a kind of sense of obligation. Uh, but we, we, we always seem to uh, um, exploit orphans in one way or the other. And in the third world, they kind of keep them at a certain level so that you know, the directors of these orphanages can continue to bring in money. We've got to show them as poor orphans so we can get funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and here in America, it's a little bit different. There's this prosperity. Um, and I, my organization was guilty of spoiling these orphans mm-hmm. as a way of getting more solicitation. Like nobody can be more compassionate than us. Right. Obviously, it's the wrong kind of compassion, and it gave the wrong kind of message and ended up hurting these kids. Absolutely. No, and it, it really goes to an idea of, of, of human flourishing, and what does that really mean, and what does that look like? And, and I think for us to really say, what what will it take to truly help this child to flourish, wherever they are, whatever culture they're in? It's really to help them understand what they're created to do. If we can do mm-hmm. that in these children... Um, that's huge. And that's really what you've, every answer you've had today has really talked to that at its core, you know, whether it's focusing on the future and the hope, whether it's giving them expectation and really giving them an understanding of what they can do. Um, you know, and, and that's something that, uh, you know, we really, you know, we have a responsibility to do that in the people that are put in front of us. And you talk about that, that, that leads us to our next question really that, um, is the idea of children aging out. Of, of the system and of the uh, whatever, you know, home they're in, whether it's the foster system, whether it's, you know, around the world, we're talking about orphanages potentially. But uh, you talk about, I think that here's a quote, I think we fail too many of the children who grow up in the system at the critical time they are leaving it. When they turn 18, they need parents just as much as they ever did before. And in many ways, even more. Um, and th- this reminds me of a, of a guy that I met. He's, he's in his thirties and he says, I still hate my birthdays and I hate holidays because I don't have a family to share them with. He's, you know, and so how can we better love and care for the orphan and at-risk children as they reach adulthood and age out of the system? Unfortunately, Phil, I don't know anybody who's doing a good job of this and that's including us. You know, I think we've gotten better at teaching life skills, some of the practical things, but that only goes so far because in the end, what's the greatest need that they have, and that is connection and relationship. Um, we can give them opportunities, with, but without some kind of permanent, um, meaningful relationship, they often flounder. And so that's where we fail is um, continuing to walk with them during that transition. Um 
Yeah, I think this goes to the issue of that that you talk about as well throughout the book, and in and you know we're talking a lot about the uh, the ideas um, and why a lot of people are talking about deinstitutionalization and really stop. And we'll talk about this later in your ministry, but the idea of really providing families for these children because to 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 try to figure it out at eighteen or beyond is a whole lot harder than providing them with a family and permanency, whether, you know, in whatever setting they're in early on. Right. So I think that's something that, you know, we need to be uh, thinking about and and understanding how we can better do that earlier on rather than trying to reverse engineer it later or say, oh, well, we got to bring mentors in because that's something I'm, and I'd like for you to speak to this too. That's something that, um, you know, I've seen just in people and I've read in different books. I haven't experienced it because I had a mom and a dad who still um, are together and have loved me my whole life. But um, the idea that if you try to bring in a mentor, it could be the best mentor in the world and do a child who never had a, a sp- particularly a father in his or her life. They often reject it, even if it's the best person in the world. Um, because it's an authority figure and that authority is just something that's rejected. Have you seen that? Did you feel that? Is that true? I think so. I, we've, we've seen it with, um, our kids as well. We, we've been looking at this for the last few years and try to determine why some of our children who came through our system, uh, succeeded and made a good trans, um, issue into adulthood and, and those who didn't. And we looked at a lot of different factors. You know, they all took the same courses. They were all in the same program. Um, but in the end, the, the factor that seems to make the difference is the kids who did well uh, had a great connection with um, a house parent or with some staff member uh, in our organization, and that relationship continued. Hmm. Right, so the, they go into our transitional living program, and their staff that help them do that. Uh, but it's still very much a, a program. The kids who are doing well have somebody they can go back to to help them navigate um, beyond the staff person that we are paying to do that. Right. Uh, so it really it comes down to relationship. Just like my own children I have four children, they all now have um, left the nest and. You know, they've called home dozens of times and come home for visits. And there were times we needed to encourage and challenge and correct and discipline. And but they had the, that to fall back on. And so that's what these kids need. They need that to fall back on. And so somebody just presenting themselves to say, "Hey, I'm I'm your mentor," or "Hey, I'm I'm the guy who's supposed to check, make sure you're uh, doing what you're supposed to do in this program," doesn't work. Right. Right. Particularly when they turn 18, they they remind me all the time. They say, Mr. Day, I'm 18. I can do what I want to. Mm. I say, yes, sir, you can. But do you recognize that I'm an adult? Mm. And they go, oh, yes, sir, Mr. Day, you're an adult. And I say, well, I can decide whether to pay for your decisions or not. <laughs> well, that doesn't help them. Right. Um, it, it just it maybe helps explain why they're being cut off from something because of uh, a a poor decision, but it doesn't change their behavior. I'm just that authority figure that's decided not to spend money on them. Right. Um, so got to earn the right to be heard. Exactly. As you talked about in the beginning of the show, it's, it's really comes back to a lot of these, obviously principles are intertwined in a lot of these different areas. Yeah. Um, 
Well, we've talked, you've alluded to the work of Patrick Henry that you're doing. You've alluded to some of the different things that, uh, that you've done, some of the different experiences, but can you just share a little bit more, um, about what Patrick Henry is and does and, and really speak to the transition that you alluded to early on. And when you're talking about the radio show where you're wanting people to understand this transition, but really this, this transition from an institutional model, institutional care to family model care. Um, that you've been doing over the last few years and maybe the process that you've, you know, Mm -hmm. used the pitfalls and and successes. Okay. So Patrick Henry Family Services, um, formerly known as Patrick Henry Boys and Girls Home, uh, started in 1961. We were um, coming onto the scene pretty late in terms of organizations that were going to do residential care. You know, uh, denominations had started out orphanages that had, had kind of morphed into children's home. And so we came in 61, we were the last on the scene, so to speak, but we still had uh, the, kind of the old orphanage idea. And when I came in 2010, I felt like I was coming to the last orphanage in America, uh, very institutional. Uh, we believed that we were doing good if we had these children um, for long periods of time. We've had children who literally grew up their entire childhood with us, 10, 12 years, and then we took care of them for four years after that in transitional living. Um, these were social orphans. Uh, they were abandoned kids, and we just felt it was our job to do um, everything for them and be those substitute uh, family for them. Uh, problem is, is we produce a lot of institutionalized kids um, who'd gotten all of the the bad things that come with institutions. And so immediately we began working and kind of switching the emphasis to reunification so we could shorten the time that these kids were with us. Um, And even for those long-term kids, we we knew that we had to do something different for them to be successful um, adults. Um, but it was hard for the organization, for those who authorize the organization, those who support the organization to kind of change the mentality. Um, they get a lot of good feelings taking care of those poor orphans and believing that somehow their support is making a difference in their lives. And there are plenty of um, good stories to tell, but um, there are also a lot of bad stories. Of course, we don't celebrate those much if you're trying to raise money. Um so I began very early on trying to change the narrative or the paradigm f- for them to see that uh, what, everything we'd been doing for 50 years um, no longer worked. And um, we were kind of on the bad side of history on that. Um, and so it's taken a while, but um, we've um, really moved away from that institutional aspect. Uh, we had seven group homes. Um, we operate four now. Our children, um, we're doing a lot better at reunifying children with families. And now our next step is to um, take some of these children who are long-term, who who cannot go home for whatever reason, uh, and going to start putting them in families. And so we're going to create our own kind of foster care network where we take these kids. So all the children that come to us are voluntarily placed um, and so we're going to place them with families, uh, but we're also going to start kind of forcing this issue of permanency and start working with social services 
um, to say, you know, this, this child has been basically abandoned um, and we need to find permanence for this child and begin working with families to, um, to do what's best for these kids, uh, terminate their parental rights and, and set these kids free. And we're actually doing that um, um, for the first time with a, a young boy who came to us at age six. Um, he's from a disrupted adoption he was in foster care system, adopted. The adopted family doesn't want him now. And so we're looking at this child who could very well be with us for 12 years. And we're working to get that adoptive family to terminate their rights. And we have found an adoptive family for him. Um, and so that's our future. I really believe that's our future. I think we're going to continue to find – these kids are going to keep coming to us. We just got to find permanency and, and – um, better outcomes for these kids. Yeah. But it's taken, it's taken the whole organization staff and everybody, um, to embrace this concept. Absolutely. So, I mean, basically you're educating, you're encouraging people to understand new things. You're talking about paradigm shifting while you're doing all the things, which exactly. is, which is uh, difficult. And not to mention, like you talked about the, and you know, and this is hopefully an encouragement to people out there who say we could never do it. We could never transition from the institution. I've heard that from people, you know, mm -hmm. as you might imagine with the book that I wrote, people are talking, yeah, but it's just impossible. We can't do it. Well, it's not impossible. It's hard. It's really hard. And that's what I talk to people a lot of times is just because it's really hard doesn't mean you don't do what's right. Exactly. And well, you know, people don't fear change. They fear loss mm -hmm. and they fear they're going to lose something. And indeed they do. Mm -hmm. They have to give up something in order to, to go in this other direction. And, and part of it is giving up all these Christmas parties where you get to shower all these gifts on kids and feel better about yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to give that up because in the end, that doesn't make a difference. Right. And so I think that's what we've been hopefully challenging people to do on the show is to challenge your thinking on, on what is right and what, what are those things that we need to be doing. And, and you might disagree with some things, but don't disagree because it's a hard challenge for you. Disagree because mm -hmm. you might, you know, put it up to scripture and it might not stand, you know, that, that discretion or that scrutiny. But, but, uh, I think that we too often go for the easier route. Um, it's not necessarily saying the work that people are doing around the world is easy. That's not what I'm saying, but I think that there are sometimes we know what's right, but we don't take that route, as you said, because of the loss that it might mm -hmm. might come our way. Um, and the, with Patrick, and in, in what you're talking about and what you're doing, and you, you've alluded to this in some of your early responses as well, but you have a strength-based philosophy. Um, why do you use that? And can you share a story about how you apply the philosophy with your children? Sure. So, you know, the, uh, the medical model is a disease kind of pathological model um, that sees uh, things as broken uh, or illness or sickness. Um, the strength-based perspective uh, says, let's, let's look for the strengths and the, the health and the wholeness uh, where it exists. Uh, strength-based perspective says um, there are resources everywhere and that there is no person, circumstance, or situation or environment where there are no resources. You may have to get creative to find it, but they're there. And so that's what you should build your plan on, your strategy on, and, and the program to, to help this child is on those strengths. It goes back to, I mentioned it earlier, instead of saying what's wrong with this child, mm -hmm. we say what happened to this child. Mm. 
and what now what resources, what strengths does this child and environment and system have that we can tap in? Um, so is you know is there an aunt somewhere that loves this child? Is there an old a grandmother somewhere that loves this child? Is um, is there a school teacher connected to this kid? Um, is, is is this child a part of a church somewhere that we could tap into uh, to find some permanency for this child? Um, so it, it really does change it around. And then when you just deal with it on an um, individual level with a child, um, I, I think it really turned my thinking around when somebody uh, – spoke to me about this concept we were actually talking about a child who we were thinking about um, dismissing from our program because of um, they they weren't um, complying with the program and they were just uh, being obstinate and we couldn't get any cooperation from them and so I'm seeing it from this negative standpoint and this kind of pathological, something's wrong with this kid. And, and this person said, well, maybe we need to see that this child's uh, defiance is a message to us that our method isn't working. Mm. <laughs> so it helped me to see that even an act of defiance could be considered a strength and not necessarily a problem or a weakness. Mm. Yeah, and seeing each child as an individual, seeing each child yes. as a unique creation. Um, well, we're, we're coming to the, to the end uh, of the interview. We have a couple more questions that we're going to get to. But before we do, I want um, to just point everyone. There were a couple articles that I really I wanted to, to go through, but it would take way too much time today. But you can. <laughs> the good news is, for everyone out there, um, I'm, we're going to put them on the show notes for this show, links to it. There's, there's one on child resilience, and Robert provides the seven C's of, of how we can um, really develop resilient children, which is critical. And I encourage all of you go out and read that because it's a fantastic article. And there's another one for you nonprofit leaders and nonprofit people that are working in nonprofits, which most people in, that are listening to this show probably have some connection, whether you're leading it, whether you're uh, connected with it in some way, whether you're advocating for some work that's being done. There's another article that's seven principles every nonprofit should practice. And I really appreciate it. I mean, I'm, you know, applying those uh, to what we're doing and kind of putting our organization through that filter as well. And we'll again put that link on the show notes for this show as well. Um, but uh, also, before we get to the last couple of questions, Robert, how can people get uh, more information um, about what you're doing, about Patrick Henry, about your radio mm -hmm. show, and really, you know, just how they can get the, these uh, resources, great resources that you have out there? Right. Uh, so if you were only going to go to one website, go to patrickhenry.org. And from there, you're going to see all of our ministries. And there's a link to uh, my blog and Straight Talk with Robert Day um, uh, at straighttalkwithrobertday.org. But go to patrickhenry.org and you'll see everything, including information about my book, Worst of Mothers, Best of Moms, and mm -hmm. where you can find that and how you can get a copy of it. Yeah, and you can definitely get that on Amazon, and it's available on Kindle as well, uh, which is how I read it. Um, but uh, the radio show, too, for those of you with short attention spans out there, um, <laughs> if you're listening to this, you have a longer attention span, if you're wondering. But he has some one-minute segments as well as the full-length you know, show. So there's, there's some just great, great material there. So on that note of listening to things and uh, reading things, um, what have you read, listened to, or watched um, that has most impacted your thinking on how we can best love and care for orphan and vulnerable children? There was a 2014 TED Talk 
uh, by Molly McGrath Tierney that just kind of shook my world. Um, here's a person who worked in the Department of Social Services in Maryland. She was the head of it. She worked hard to improve um, what was a very bad system. And she got better outcomes, um, lowered the amount of money it was taking to, to do it. And at the end of five years, realized that in the end, they were doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And for somebody in the system um, to stand up and say that um, was amazing to me. And she talked about the child welfare industrial complex and how this system now feeds on itself. And it has to have broken families. It's got to have vulnerable children. Um, and the system requires you taking kids away from families. Um, and so we're doing the wrong thing. It's not that we're doing the right thing badly. We're doing the wrong thing. Mm. Um, and so it was just a great short TED talk that can really change your world when it comes to thinking about these things. Yeah, that was a great talk. I actually used that talk in, in the course that I teach, um, Mm. at a local university and, and there's also a response to it. Um, and we'll put these on the show notes as well. I think Jed Medifin wrote a response, Christian Alliance for Orphans to that Ted talk, um, that, uh, didn't, didn't disagree with what she was saying, but put some context on it as well, Mm. which I thought was very, very good. Um, and speaking of Ted talks, there's another one that I'm just going to give a little bonus. And so it's, uh, Tara Winkler, uh, has done a Ted talk on, uh, orphanages and she's in Cambodia and she wrote it. She wrote a book on, um, how she started an orphanage and really does not recommend it. And so, mm. um, it's a, another good Ted talk, um, that we'll, we'll link to that. Uh, the last question, Robert, uh, what one person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love and care for orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? <laughs> Well, it's going to sound sappy, but I'd have to say the scripture and and uh, Jesus' attitude about the children. You know, he got indignant when his disciples turned the children away from him and wouldn't allow him to wouldn't allow them to be blessed by him. Only we only see him angry two times in scriptures, and and that was one of them. Mark says he was indignant, and then he said something pretty profound. He said, "Such is the kingdom of heaven." Um, I, I think everything we need to know or feel about this issue, it can be found right there in that scripture. Mm. Well, Robert, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for, um, your life. Thank you for being faithful to God's call, uh, on you and for putting your story, uh, into a book that can, that hopefully will impact many, uh, listening to the show and so many, so many others. So thanks again. Thank you, Phil. Well, thanks again to, to Robert. I, I've been really uh, had the privilege to get to know Robert over the last few months, and he is a man that is a real deal. He's a man that's thinking through these issues. He's a man who has lived a life that, uh, you know, not many of us have, and he's using that, fortunately, for good, and he's using that in ways that can help others through similar things that they're now going through. And so I, just, I really appreciated um, through the conversation, just his humility to not think he knows all the answers to really, um, say, you know, I've been through a lot, but we're still learning and we're trying to figure this out and to hear how they, um, how he came in realized, you know, by studying things, by seeing things and also by experiences that he knows that children need families. And so to start, you know, to say the institutional is not the right model, but how can we do it? And that's what they're living out right now. So Karen, you know, what, what, uh, what do you think about, what do you think about when, when you heard this interview? 
Yeah, I, I think his story is incredibly powerful. What a powerful story. I think he said he moved 37 times. Um, that's definitely uh, impacts a child's development. Um, I think that him sharing his story is incredibly powerful. I'm sure that when he's working with children and teenagers, that has a massive impact as he was talking about. One of the things that stood out for me when he was sharing pieces of his story, um, you know, so often, especially in in, in our culture and in the um just even media and social media and all those things <laughs> that um, we read and, and hear about lately. We, we don't hear very, well, I guess maybe we hear good things about the church, but I, most of the time in secular media, we don't. And so I think it was great to hear him say that what was incredibly powerful for him growing up was the thousands of acts of kindness by Christian people and how that um, he experienced those things in those small churches and the 37 places that he lived and how powerful that was for him to have um, people just being kind to him, people in the church being kind to him. And I, I heard that and I thought, wow, like what a testimony to what the church did for him. Him, what the church should be doing, and I know is doing across the nation um, and across the globe, but even a, a great encouragement and reminder of how powerful even something like giving like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to a little boy might be, or um, offering to you know help him find you know his Sunday school class or his Awana class or whatever those acts of kindness might have specifically looked like. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that that's that's something that. Uh, you know, we, we just, we really often overlook is just the importance of others outside the family to be able to come in and others that, you know, I, I don't think you and I overlook it necessarily, but I think out in, in society, a lot of the times, um, we just seem to think people can think we can deal with it all on ourselves. We can deal with it. We can work through these issues and not really seek that out, but to know that those, that the, it's so important in children's lives and, you know, whether there's a family there or not, right? That, that, that is so critical to have that. Um, and I think that a lot of our guests talk about that where, where it's the consistency of people in your lives who care about you and are coming in to be able to, uh, develop trust. Right. And I think he mm-hmm. talked about that a lot as well that, you know, we to, to have, I think Josh Shipp talked about that when he was talking about the, the Babe Ruth, you know, where you come in and you call your shot and then you follow up on it. Right. Right. And you know, that's what I think, you know, Robert talked a lot about too, was just the importance to continually be there to develop that trust, to have people in your life that are doing that. And, you know, usually that's a parent, right? Usually that's, that's someone that, but I think in his life, it was just something that he was like, I just need to have someone who can come in and be consistent. And mm-hmm. that that's what he realizes and understands that the other kids need, which I think too goes to their transition. And I want you to speak to that too, you know, a little bit. He talked about the strength-based philosophy that Patrick Henry has, which I, I love anytime you're talking about strength-based uh, rather than, you know, starting with a, from a place of weakness. But then also that, that he has seen, I wanted to just hear your thoughts on that. You know, we've heard about deinstitutionalization. We've heard about, you know, people coming in and saying we need to close down institutions, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But then this is a real example of an organization that has seen the pitfalls of it, of institutional Mm -hmm. care Mm -hmm. and saying we want to go to family model, but it's not as easy as you might think to to actually make that transition. And, And I just wanted to hear your thoughts from that, you know, kind of from a different perspective than mine. Yeah, I think he had said that maybe literally Patrick Henry, I think it had a different name before they switched it over to Patrick Henry Family Services, but I think it literally might have been the last official orphanage in the country. Did he say that? I think he might have said that. It's one Um, of them, if not the, so I think there's a few more that might, you know, still be out there, but yeah. 
yeah, you know, I was encouraged to hear him say that, you know, that they, they realized, um, that what they were doing was just not working and that they were seeing actually, um, kind of detrimental impact of the institutionalization, which we've talked about so much, but, um, you know, being willing to make some, some really significant changes, not only within the, the formation of, um, the services that they're providing, but he even talked about specifically the, the way that they are providing care for children who are on site at their, um, children's homes. One of the examples he gave, um, was, you know, talking about the big elaborate celebrations around the holidays holiday season. And when he talked about, um, how they went from these huge, elaborate, lots of gifts, lots of fun, like overwhelming stuff. There was all kinds of behaviors and it was very difficult. And I'm sure there was rivalries and jealousy. And then I loved the model that he said they do now where they just do like a hundred dollar budget and 50 of that is for the child and 50 of it is for the child to be able to buy gifts for their family. Mm-hmm. What a powerful, powerful place. Um, what a powerful gift to give that child to be able to give their family a gift. Um, when I heard that, I was like, that's it. That's, that's altruism. That's teaching altruism. That's building resilience. That's causing a child to have value, um, and to increase their sense of belonging within not only, um, the community that they're currently living in, in the group home or or the children's home, but then within their family that they're the goal for reunification. Yeah, absolutely. No. And I love anytime you're teaching a child to serve others. Anytime you're teaching a child that they have something to give, right? Anytime you're teaching a child that mm-hmm. God has created them to serve, God has created them with unique gifts and talents that will, that it, they're there to help others, not to, not to just be self-serving, but to go out and help others. And, you know, you also talked about the resilience and we didn't really get into this in the interview, but I'm going to, we're going to post a, an article, Child Resilience, and talk about the seven C's. And I, I know that that's not just something Robert made up. That's something that's out there. Can you just speak just very briefly about the seven C's um, of child resilience? You don't know about those. Okay, well, you know, I, I thought I mean, you would I have. I talk to you about child so, resilience. Well, like right. This. Okay, well, you know, I, you know, this is the one, I, 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 I'm gonna mark this out there. Everyone out there, I'm gonna mark this <laughs> as the first time I have stumped Karen on something that I threw out I to mean, her. I think I could come so she, I've seen a couple articles out there. So my, what I'm learning is the seven C's of child resilience is not legit science right now because Karen does not know about it. No, I'm sure I'm, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You know it, you know it, you know it. You just don't know that you know it. That's the thing. I think if you go read the article, you'll be like, oh yeah, of course. So, but you just never heard it referred to in that. So we will put that on the website. It it may have been way back in the day. I don't think so. I just think it, I just think it's something that, that has been come up and they, they basically wanted some alliteration to something that you already know. So everyone out there, don't, don't take this as a point of, oh, Karen doesn't know what she's talking about because this woman knows everything that she needs to know. (laughs) What you can take this as is that Karen is human. And I know that some people out there were wondering if she is because she's just this wealth of knowledge. So I, I love that that's the way it happened because, you know, we talk about real talk with real people and this is about as real as it gets because you folks out there are understanding and learning that this is not scripted. And, and this is one way that I want to do that. You know, like I said, I put her on the spot here and there. This was one of those (laughs) times I put her on the spot and it showed the human side. So this is fantastic. And I I wish you out there could have seen her face. This is one of those times. I'm going to make myself remember. 
remember them. I'm going to think through it and I'm going to be like, okay, I know this. And, I'm going to do it. That's the this way my is brain great. works. We're all learning. So thank you for the rest of my afternoon. Absolutely. We're all learning. And, and I want you folks out there to know that this is one of those other times that I wish we had a video podcast. Because if you could have seen Karen's face when I uh, had mentioned the seven th- C's and it was, <laughs> it was pretty fantastic. So anyway, on that note, I am going to go to something that I know that I know. And that is the recommendation that I'm going to give you. And so um, this is this is just awesome. I, I am so excited right now that Karen did not know that because it, it added so much to this show that I think we could not have gotten if she just came and made this beautiful statement about the seven C's. So anyway, we're going to go to the recommendation right now. And it's a book I uh, recently have finished. I was waiting to recommend it until I actually finished it. And it's called The Road to Character by David Brooks, a guy who's had some fantastic books out there. I've heard him speak at different conferences and I really respect this man's wisdom. Um, the book basically, you know, it's talking about how, you know, it's talking about character and what, you know, and, and really how character is a, is a thing that's tough to find right now in a lot of people because it's such a me based culture and he calls it the big me culture right now that we are so focused on self so focused on you know it's really become a narcissistic culture and so to really have character is it needs to be others focused and we need to see things outside of ourselves and really get our you know get the the character develops from that um the one thing actually interestingly about it is i i've actually uh did a message to David Brooks after reading it. Cause the one thing that it really triggered in me was when he talks about, you need to go outside of self to really get that, uh, the meaning and to get the, the base for a, an understanding of what's right. And, and what really forms culture or, or character is the fact that we really need absolute truth in there too. He didn't go as far as to say that in the book. And I think probably cause it's not a Christian book per se, but, um, the thing that I keep coming down to is if we don't have that absolute truth, it's really hard to say that you don't have the right quote unquote character because you, um, are basing it on a cultural norm or something in society that could be changing. And it's just based on what others are thinking. So that's something that, you know, be thinking about that out there. Can you have justice? Can you have, you know, this, this, um, right, so to speak in society without absolute truth? you know, without a common center, without something that we agree on that is never changing. And that's something, think about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on anything else you heard in this interview um, or, or the conversation that Karen and I were just having. Anything that, that uh, comes to your mind, uh, share it with us. Join the conversation by sending us an email, sending us a, a Facebook uh, comment, um, something on our website. Also, Go to, go to iTunes and leave a, leave a review, rate the show. It helps us get it out there. And we also very, very much value your feedback. So take everything you learned today. Take even the humility that came from, uh, you know, just the little fun part we had a few minutes ago with Karen not knowing. Just that, you know, that, that's, that's the stuff that's real. That's the stuff that we can take. If you can't tell out there, I'm, I'm really relishing in this moment. Um, but uh, we love you all out there. We really consider you as part of this team. And I can't wait to hear stories from you about how you're using what you're learning to um, just really learn more and more every day how you can love orphaned and vulnerable children better and better each day. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Bye-bye. 
We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.